Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters, and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we're going to talk about how we have been keeping entertained at home in the wonderful world of 2020. And by wonderful, we generally mean dumpster fire. For those of you that don't know us, sarcasm is our second language. First up is Airbnb experiences. Paul and I started checking these out after I read several reviews about them. Frankly, I couldn't decide if some of those reviews were really just paid advertisements in disguise, but honestly, I was in such dire need of a creative outlet, I didn't really care. It turns out, there are some fabulous learning opportunities to check out. To be clear, these are honest experiences and not advertisements. The first one we attended was Caravaggio in Rome. Francesca, the tour guide, also works for Joy of Rome Tours, and they have a lot of really interesting-looking online offerings. And this tour was fantastic. Caravaggio, in addition to being an amazing painter, was also a murderer and generally a cad. So I'd say this isn't one for the kids. I love this tour because it really took advantage of modern technology to make up for the fact that we couldn't be there in person. Francesca used Google Maps to show lots of the places she talked about and had photographs of the art that she used to describe both history and art history in detail. We've been to Italy, and still I learned so much. I know that I got you interested in the experiences too. What have you signed up for? My first experience was Irish village history, culture, and crack. Crack is an Irish term meaning news, gossip, fun, and enjoyable conversation, among other things. The host, Mark, is absolutely charming as he takes you around a tour of his town, which is located about 30 minutes just outside of Dublin. You get some interesting facts about his village, some Irish lore, and even a fairy tale. Mark filmed the tour himself, which includes stunning views of the Irish coastline and a cameo or two from his precious dog, Misty. We just did this one, too, based on your recommendation, and I loved it so much. It was so much fun. I thought Mark did a great job using video and photos to give you a sense of place and show the beautiful Irish scenery. He was very funny and extremely knowledgeable. I felt like it was the perfect combination of fun, history, and local culture. I am so ready for that in-person tour of seafood and breweries just as soon as we can travel. Agreed. Ireland has always been at the top of my list of destinations, and this experience definitely solidified its spot. Next, I followed a plague doctor through Prague. My host for the evening was David in full plague doctor ensemble. He takes you through Old Town Prague on a foot tour while giving a thorough and fascinating history of Dr. Alexander Shomsky, an unknown Czech hero who fought the plague in 1713. 
The video of the tour was professionally shot during quarantine, so the streets are deserted, adding to the mysterious quality of the storytelling, which is all done live as the experience unfolds. You learn some truly fascinating facts about the history of Prague and the prior pneumonic and bubonic plagues in the area. Everyone that's ever been to Prague told me how much they thought I would love Prague. So I would be interested in it on that alone, but it also seems, unfortunately, very timely in its topic. One of our favorite experiences isn't available now, but it's Meet the Dogs of Chernobyl. The tour is led by Lucas Hickson, one of the co-founders of Clean Futures Fund, and the Clean Futures Fund supports the workers and the dogs that live in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. I suspect the cold weather is the reason this one isn't available, so keep your eyes out for it in the future. It's fantastic. That is one I very much want to attend, so I will be keeping a close eye for when it is available. Next, I was regaled with the story of Jack the Ripper through East London in 1888. Your host, Jamie, takes you through the details of Jack the Ripper's crimes, so this experience is not for the squeamish. Jamie is very knowledgeable on the subject of serial killers and quizzes you on your knowledge as well. He welcomes and enjoys questions, so come prepared with an inquisitive mind. The tour was very informative on both the factual details of the crimes, the lore that has been created as a result, and Jamie even includes his own personal theory on the identity of Jack the Ripper, and I must say I am very intrigued. I've read several books about the topic over the years, and Jack the Ripper is and the crimes are something that comes up frequently in popular entertainment as well as historical fiction. So I would be very interested to see what his theories are regarding the identity of Jack the Ripper. We also really enjoyed the experience called The Art and Soul of Black Broadway. Tim, the host, is a former civics teacher and museum educator who is also a licensed tour guide. This was clearly something he was passionate about, and as someone who comes from a family of teachers like we do, I love supporting a former educator. The tour uses public murals and music to talk about the musical heritage of Washington, D.C.'s U Street, otherwise known as Black Broadway. Tim even provides a killer Spotify playlist with relevant musicians after the tour that I'm still listening to a couple of months later. This is the kind of tour I try to find when I travel, something unique that I know little to nothing about. I also love the combination of art, music, and history that the tour provided. Lastly, I enjoyed Bedtime Legends from Mexico. This experience surprised me in a good way. Nefer the host takes you through the story of Mayan sorceress Shatabe in detail and covers some sorceresses from other cultures as well. Nefer is a psychologist by training, and the whole experience is a lesson in the power of women. How their knowledge of the earth and its resources is what led to them being called witches. How their power was stolen from them through the demonization of the title of witch. And how we should take that power back. The discussion with Nefer is truly what makes this experience fascinating and unique. There are so, so many experiences to choose from. 
a sampling on what I have on my saved list of experiences I want to attend are all about Japanese cuisine for foodies, discover Buenos Aires street art and sketch, meet a real-life shark scientist, and tales of medieval Dubrovnik. There is truly something for everyone. We will share the experiences we have attended linked on our website, and we highly recommend you check out which experiences you would be interested in attending. We would also love to hear about it. A PSA. Many of these tours are affordable, around the $20 a person mark, but the tour guides have put years of experience into the content, and many are professional guides just trying to make it work during COVID. So I encourage you to ask them if there's a way to provide them with a gratuity if they meet your expectations. Agreed. I always try to do that as well. Next, we want to discuss virtual concerts and album releases this year. First and foremost, we have Lear Lynn. Shannon and I adore her. We first heard her music on season two of True Detective. She was the lounge singer in the background at the bar Vince Vaughn's character frequented. Discovering her music was truly the highlight of an underwhelming season of TV. Ever since, we have had the annual tradition of attending at least one of her live shows. This year, we had the pleasure of attending multiple live performances via streaming. She also just released her self-produced album on October 23rd, On My Own. So, of course, we listened immediately. The album is solid, which was no surprise to us given our love of her music. My favorite track from the album is Dark Horse which was actually released as a single prior to the full album, along with a cover of What's Love Got to Do With It. Also, completely amazing. I would choose Are You Listening and Let Me Tell You Something to round out my top three, though I really do love the whole album. What about you? First, I think her music is hard to classify, but I would call it a mixture of Americana, folk, singer-songwriter music, the female-centric country that's popular right now. And more and more, her songs, some of her songs at least, seem to have a bluesy edge. We've seen Lara in Austin, Houston, and Atlanta. As if you need another reason to hate COVID, she's not touring now. But she did mention on her Instagram that she's doing a socially distanced show at City Winery in Nashville, and it's also going to be live-streamed, so I'm pretty excited about that. First, I really love this entire album. As I mentioned, some of the songs have a bluesier sound than some of her previous music, and I really like that. I agree with you about Dark Horse and Are You Listening? I set up a Spotify playlist based on Are You Listening? And it has so many amazing female artists. I also really love Let Me Tell You Something and Make You Okay. Make You Okay showcases her incredible, incredible voice. And the video for Let Me Tell You Something is great too. I love the message of the song. People are clearly trying to discourage her from following her dreams, and yet she's still making it happen. I've seen several interviews with her about how she's experienced sexism and the music experience over time. Everything from, you know, assuming people assuming she's a salesperson instead of a musician 
or when something goes wrong with her guitars, they assume it's because she did something wrong with the equipment because she didn't know how to use it. You know, your basic sexist sort of situations. And she really hopes that that's changing. That's really one of the reasons why she wanted to produce, write and play all the instruments on this album herself. I ordered the deluxe vinyl set and I'm super excited to get it. It isn't here yet. But we'll have a link on how to purchase this album as well as how to find it on Spotify in the episode resources on our website. Next up, we have Black Pumas from our hometown of Austin, Texas. This is my favorite new band in many, many years. I have to admit that I felt kind of like a proud mom when they got a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist and they were up there with Lizzo and Billie Eilish both of whom I love, but who are just powerhouses. The two front men for the band are singer-songwriter Eric Burton and guitar player and producer Adrian Quesada. I didn't know much about the band when I started listening to them, except that I loved their music. But when I started doing a little bit more research, I recently found out that Adrian Quesada was also a member of of the Grammy-winning Grupo Fantasma. So now he's been in not one, but two incredible groups, which is just astounding to me. The Black Pumas debut album came out in June 2019, and they crushed 2019 and were crushing 2020 until COVID hit. They've done several online shows, including one of my favorites, which was broadcast from the Central Library in Austin, Texas, on the day the city deemed Black Pumas Day to celebrate the first anniversary of their album. I just got the deluxe vinyl, and in addition to the album, it has an entire record of extra songs, including a solid cover of Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car. Their music sounds like a throwback, and yet they're making something fresh. They sound every bit as good live as they do on the album, maybe even better. It's astounding. And we optimistically bought tickets to see them in May, and I'm really hoping the COVID situation lets that happen. I absolutely adored their deluxe album. Their music is everything you said and more. It's the kind of music I want to have playing all the time in the background, like a soundtrack to my life. I love the kind of music that you can listen to intently or have wondering in the background, and the level of enjoyment does not change. They are awesome. I completely agree with you. My life would be 10% funkier if I just had their album on 24-7. Definitely. Lyle Levitt has been doing a series of what he's calling Lyle Levitt and shows, where he teams up with musicians he knows. So far, I've seen broadcasts with Sean Colvin, Dwight Yoakam, and Chris Isaac. They were all great, but the show with Chris Isaac just tickled me. Lyle and Chris are two of my all-time favorite live performers. You see, I'm just calling them by their first name like they're my friends or something, if only. But to see them playing together and telling stories was one of the greatest things ever. I would love to have the two of them over for dinner. I think they just keep you in stitches. Lyle also sang one of my favorite of his songs, My Baby Don't Tolerate. His songs often tell stories, which is something I really love, and they can either be 
tragic and mournful or extremely funny. And my baby don't tolerate definitely falls into the extremely funny camp. I know you saw this one. Please tell me you loved it as much as I did. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. The rapport between Lyle and Chris was priceless. They are genuinely two of the nicest people ever and spent most of their conversation straight up fangirling over each other. It was so pure and magnificent. The music was, of course, excellent as well. I love, love, loved it. Pete Yorn has broadcast concerts where he plays full albums in order. I love this concept. We watched him play 2001's Music for the Morning After, and he's as good as ever. And I have to say, that man has aged like fine wine. You were over for this one. What'd you think? I really enjoyed it. We were half watching and half enjoying it in the background, and it was all good. Guy Forsyth is a longtime Austinite and legendary musician, and he and his extremely talented wife, Jessica Bailey, play on Facebook a couple of times a week. I know some people aren't on Facebook, but if you're anti-social media, and I totally get it, get an anonymous account so you can check out some of these shows. Guy and Jessica play what I would call Americana music. They also have a great gospel brunch performance every Sunday. They're terrific live too. So once that's a thing again, I highly recommend you check them out. Guy and Jessica have been very candid about how the pandemic has dramatically impacted their earnings. They've also been very vocal about how COVID-related income losses are closing valuable music venues across the country. Black Pumas also participated in a concert for Save Our Stages, which benefited the National Independent Venue Association Emergency Relief Fund. We'll have the links on our website to these organizations so you can find out how you can help. Next, we would like to cover some more selections of our online book club. Shannon introduced us to the Fantastic Strangelings book club in our Haunted House Stories episode, but I wanted to mention it again here. I joined the book club based on our read for the previous episode, Mexican Gothic, which was truly excellent. A brief recap for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to the Haunted House Stories episode, Mexican Gothic puts its own unique spin on the Haunted House story. An Englishman seeking to prolong his youth discovers a psychedelic mushroom with life-extending properties that he manipulates for his own personal gain and immortality, growing the spore on his land, infecting his home and everyone that enters. It was a fascinating and thrilling story I could barely put down, and I joined the book club on the strength of it alone. The first selection I received as a part of the book club was A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik. The story is set at Skolomonts, a school for the magically gifted where you graduate or die, literally. There are no teachers, no breaks, and only strategic friendships made for survival. Our protagonist, L, begins to unravel the mysteries of the school, the monsters that lie in wait around every corner, and her own dark power that she keeps hidden from everyone. This is the first book in a planned series, so it does end on a mild cliffhanger. I have not yet read the Harry Potter series of books. I have seen the movies, but I know that's not the same. Even so, 
the inspiration of the setting is obvious to anyone. However, it seems that despite influences, it is a story all its own. You've read the Harry Potter series and have started a deadly education. Do you agree? I have to be honest, I'm a little behind on the Strangelings book club because I'm finishing up a book for my In Real Life book club, and I'm also finishing up Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby, a previous Strangelings selection. It is laugh out loud funny, and I have to be honest, I needed that right now. When I say laugh out loud funny, I mean, first I read it, crack up, then I read it out loud to Paul, and we both crack up. That is very rare for me. But back to a deadly education. The first chapter definitely exhibits a Harry Potter influence. I do want to note that the internet at large has been critical of some racist choices in the book, and with good reason. I did really enjoy the story, but also noticed these offenses as well. Given that this is the first of a series, I am curious if these mistakes will be appropriately addressed in future releases. I remain hopeful that they will be, but we will have to wait and see if this will be a series we would recommend. Another prior selection of the book club that Shannon had already read and recommended to me was Crossings by Alex Landrigan. This is an epic story that follows two souls over many lifetimes. It is a brilliantly constructed and compelling read. I know you loved it too. So very much. This book is similar to Mexican Gothic to me in that it almost seems like it was written in a different era. There are actual diagrams explaining the plot and the characters of crossings that are online, but please don't let that scare you off reading the book. Hypnotic is the word I would use to describe it. You know when a book starts, I didn't write this book, I stole it, that you're in for a wild ride. There's no easy way to describe the plot, but simplistically, it's about lovers who can cross over into other people, basically switching bodies with another person. The book follows the two main characters over the span of many years while they inhabit multiple bodies. One of the main characters is the real-life poet Charles Baudelaire, which I loved. I should note that you really need to buy a physical copy of this book. Flipping back and forth on an e-reader is a huge pain. You'll definitely want to go back and reread parts, plus the book has a second sequence that requires you to skip around. Is it just me, or did this make you want to take a bookbinding class? I mean, seriously. I can picture myself happily making a living in a small shop, binding books for the rest of my life, for both the average customer and the occasional, eccentric, fabulously rich baroness. (laughs) No, it is definitely not just you. Another previous selection that you had already read, which I just started, is Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. Why don't you tell us a little about it? In the novel... The Catherine House is a secretive university that has produced some of the most powerful individuals in U.S. history, including presidents, Supreme Court justices, and other people who basically run the world. It's a three-year program, and for the most part, students aren't able to contact their families during the course of their studies, and they're cut off from all contact 
with and knowledge of the outside world. The main character, Ines, has struggled in life and is surprised to find herself accepted into this extremely elite and unconventional school. It doesn't take long before she starts to suspect something sinister is happening behind the scenes. So what are you thinking about the book so far? I am currently through chapter four or year one, and I am loving it. I know you said it was slow to start, but I am really enjoying the character buildup of Ines, the school itself, and the other key players. By the way, my brain has cast the headmistress, Victoria Varga, as Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> as you do. You also said it ends with quite the explosive conclusion, so I am confident all the buildup will be absolutely worth it. I enjoyed this book, but I felt like the slow burn was maybe just a little too slow. About 75 pages in, give or take, I found myself wondering when it was going to pick up the pace. This is in contrast to Mexican Gothic, which was a slow burn that kept me turning the pages totally enthralled. All that said, the ending? Whoa. I maybe should have seen it coming, but I absolutely didn't, and I loved it. I saw some criticism online that the book ended without a real resolution, but I think you can infer a lot about what will happen given what we know about Catherine House. That said, I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel about what does happen to the characters next. The ending of year one is well past the point where you were wondering when it would pick up, but I have not yet had that feeling. There is something I have noticed about reading that differs with me from watching a movie. I genuinely do not want to know what happens. There is something about a book that is easier for me to accept the journey and not want to rush to the conclusion. I do not get impatient, which is very unlike me, and if I do, I just read faster. I have yet to have the desire to look up an ending of a book prior to finishing it, though that may change. You never know. That's super interesting and is absolutely the opposite of both of us as we are with movies. I wish I could say the same for me with books. I try, but I need to work to be more like you. One of the fantastic things about the Fantastic Strangelings Book Club is that alternate reads are provided. So if the selection of the month isn't your style, you have an alternate recommendation to which you can direct your reading energy. The alternate for October was The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I was already familiar with this from a TikTok I saw, and it was added to my wish list before named the alternate for the book club. Needless to say, when it was also suggested by Jenny Lawson, our fearless book club leader, I immediately purchased. It is waiting impatiently for me to finish Catherine House. I am totally grabbing that book from you when you finish it. Your newfound love of reading is my favorite development of a year when I really needed a positive one. It's so much fun we can talk about books now, and I love that we're both supporting locally owned bookstores. I wanted to give a shout out to Austin's Magical Book People, which opened all the way back in 1970. And now they have a beautiful building in downtown Austin. They have a subscription service called Trustfall that features debut novels and comes with thank you gifts for trusting them to select the books sight unseen. The Trustfall selections come out four times a year, so it isn't a huge time or financial commitment 
but it is a great way to support them. I just signed up and I'm super excited about it. I found out about the Trustfall subscription during the preparation of this episode and immediately signed up too. Now that I can successfully read with enjoyment, I want to read all of the books. I have so many books in my wish list, it is kind of ridiculous. I've made an agreement with myself. I am not allowed to order any more books until I have read through all of the books and my last order received. More books is my reward for reading books. I definitely needed a method to control my book purchases, and so far it has worked. So far. I cannot speak for future Shelley in any blackout moments of bulk book orders. Aside from the necessities in life, I can't think of a better way to spend your money or your time. One exciting development that was happening on a small scale, but has really taken off during the pandemic, is movie premieres. At your house. I think about some of the best movie-going experiences I've had in the last two to three years, like Get Out and Knives Out, which was actually the last movie I saw before the pandemic hit, and the audience was a huge part of my enjoyment. I do want to go back to the theater when I feel safe to do so, and Austin's very own Alamo Draft House does an amazing job at keeping people quiet and helping you otherwise enjoy the movie. As they say in their preview, be quiet or we'll throw your ass out. That said, there's something to be said for seeing movies snuggled up under a blanket on your sofa. Apple TV released Sofia Coppola's new movie, On the Rocks, starring Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. We've already made our profound feelings of Bill Murray love clear in our time travel episode, when we talked about the classic Groundhog Day. So obviously, I was extremely pumped when Apple announced their combo theater home movie release. What'd you think of the film? Overall, I liked it, but I did find it uncomfortable to watch at times. The interactions between Laura and her husband were just too real. I don't want to always see something so true to life on the screen for entertainment. I know what those interactions feel like, I don't need to be reminded. That being said, I don't know if I could ever not like a movie with Bill Murray. While his character left something to be desired, his performance was amazing. This made me want to rewatch one of my all-time favorite movies, Lost in Translation. I thought On the Rocks was a perfectly fine way to spend an evening, but I definitely didn't like it as much as I liked Lost in Translation. Rashida Jones plays Laura, a writer and mom, who starts to think her husband is cheating on her. She calls in her philandering dad, Felix, played by Bill Murray, to help her figure out what's going on. You start to get the feeling early on that Felix is manufacturing drama just to continue having adventures with Laura. GQ has a great article about Bill Murray's fabulous wardrobe, which we'll link to on our webpage. And in it, they refer to the film as a, quote, Mellow Manhattan Night Caper. Now I ask you, is a mellow caper really what you want in life? I feel like the, for me, the jury's still out on that one. But I also think this characterization does the film a disservice. I think it's superficially a mellow caper. 
but I think it's really about the often complicated nature of father-daughter relationships and the effect a philandering father has on his family. I think the key to the movie is one of the last things Laura says to Felix. The next time you want to spend more time together, just say so. It's also a showcase for Bill Murray, who at this point is a national treasure. And clearly Sofia Coppola thinks so too. Next, we'd like to talk about The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. I absolutely loved this series. I have always had a complete and utter fascination with chess, even though I have never been a player, and they handled the inclusion of the game flawlessly. They talk about chess at length, but never in such a way that you were lost not understanding what is happening. Anya Taylor-Joy's performance as our protagonist, Beth Harmon, is exquisite. She is compelling and steals every scene she is in. It is hard to take your eyes off her. I attribute part of this intrigue to her magnificently curated wardrobe on the series by costume designer Gabrielle Binder. The website Tom and Lorenzo has an article discussing the sometimes subtle, sometimes not, references to the game of chess in Beth's attire. There is a photo gallery accompanying the article showcasing the different gingham and plaid wardrobe choices reflecting the chessboard in fashion. The Brooklyn Museum is also running a virtual exhibition of costumes from the Queen's Gambit, along with the crown, through December 13th. I think you really hit on something about the chess. I've only ever played chess a handful of times in my life, and it is an extremely hard game. I don't understand it at all, despite having played. And yet, I never felt lost in the the course of the miniseries. Plus, it was just so riveting and compelling, as much so, I would say, as any sports movie I've ever watched. I adore Tom and Lorenzo, and they were right that Beth Harmon's wardrobe was on point. This has to be an Emmy-winning performance for Taylor Joy. I watched a YouTube interview with her, and she said it was important to her to make sure that Beth was well-dressed and feminine even though she was working in a male-dominated world. She didn't want the fact that she was engaged in an intellectual pursuit to mean she had to forego caring about her wardrobe. I also think it's very clear that Beth derives power from her looks and her femininity. A shout-out to the actress who plays young Beth, too, Isla Johnston. The character is young and clearly lacks self-confidence, but that belies her inner strength. I have two more episodes left, but this is one of my favorite entertainment experiences of 2020. Last, but certainly not least, we want to talk about one of our all-time favorite comfort watches, The Great British Baking Show. I've read some hot takes recently about how it isn't what it used to be, and to those people I have to say, you are not my people. If ever I needed a season of this show, it's in 2020. Bless the cast and crew for finding a way to make this happen during COVID. What did you think of the season so far? I love this show. It was a few seasons back when you and Paul discovered it on Netflix and recommended it to me. I binged all episodes available and caught up to you in one weekend. It is addictive, fun, and just what is needed in 2020. 
I follow a TikToker at Allie underscore Stripes, who is baking her way through all of the recipes of the Great British Baking Show, and she is an absolute gem. I highly recommend checking her out if you're a fan of the show, and even if you aren't, she is delightful. There are still two seasons that aired in Britain that haven't aired here, and I think that is simply cruel. I love this season. I'll be honest. At first, there were no real standout bakers, except maybe Peter. Some of the others stood out for maybe the wrong reasons. Rowan cracked me up because he just refused to listen to Paul and Prue, or even do whatever the brief required. Yet he was having so much fun, it was impossible not to appreciate him. His Marie Antoinette showstopper was one of the only ones that looked like the person they were supposed to be. I love Japan Week, and now I'm dreaming of steam buns. And that is a real danger of this show in general. Laura's turn as Star Baker was really a surprise. She struggled a lot and then found her footing big time during Pastry Week. Her showstopper tart with the pastry cage was amazing. Of the remaining bakers, who do you think has the best chance to take home the glass cake stand? Well, first, I completely agree about the missing seasons. Why aren't they available to us? It is so frustrating. Back to the current season. I don't think there is a clear winner yet, though my favorite is Peter. I just can't help myself. He is so adorable. I just want to pinch his cheeks. Lottie found her fitting and came in strong in the most recent episode, too. But I feel that pretty much everyone has had their good moments and bad ones. Given that, it's really unpredictable of how the rest of the season will go. I agree that of the remaining bakers, Peter seems to be the most consistent. And can we just point out the man is 20 years old? But I think more than any previous season, it's really anybody's to win. Lottie seems to be peaking at the right time. And I also think Mark E. has had some real moments of brilliance. Regardless of who wins... What I really love about this show is its kindness. There's no manufactured villain like there is in so many of America's reality shows. Even in the episode where Sura accidentally knocked most of Dave's technical challenge onto the floor, he didn't yell at her. He was clearly gutted, as they like to say on the show. But he also said, accidents happen. She was so upset about it, she cried for the rest of the episode, but then neither one of them got eliminated. A guest on one of my favorite podcasts, Slate's Culture Gab Fest, likened the show to a warm hug, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much. I completely agree. There are only one or two seasons that had any real drama. For the most part, it is just fun for everyone involved. One of my favorite moments ever was during Collection 1 on Netflix or Series 5 on BBC with the contestant Nancy. She received some harsh reviews from Paul Hollywood, and she started referring to him only as the male judge. They both, along with everyone else, were tickled by the playful animosity, not to mention all of the interesting and fabulous bakes in every season. It is just such a joy. We hope you have enjoyed some of our ideas of how to pass the time at home. What have you been doing to keep entertained? 
We would love to hear from you. Please join us next week when we discuss whodunit movies, including Murder on the Orient Express, both old and new, as well as Knives Out, in case you want to watch before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. Thank you.